I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbun. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, and I'm here to speak with two people who have written uh, one of my favorite books on sports studies this year. This is Maria Verai, who is an associate professor of kinesiology at San Francisco State University, and Rita Liberty, professor of kinesiology at Cal State East Bay, and they are the authors of Gridiron Gourmet, Gender and Food at the Football Tailgate, out from University of Arkansas Press in 2019. Thank you both for joining me here today. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Keith. And I I mentioned this when we were just talking before the interview, but this was the book that was suggested to me by more people, and I'm glad that they suggested it because I had so much fun reading it, although I have to admit a certain amount of (laughs) (laughs) self-realization while reading it as well. And I hope as we talk, uh, some of the listeners will get (laughs) get that. (laughs) But I, I'd love if you two would tell me a little bit about how you developed this fascinating project. Well, it actually, it got started almost a decade ago. Actually, I was sitting in my living room with my partner, Trudy, who was reading the New York Times. And she was reading an article about a new TV spot that was coming up. Guy Fieri was doing Tailgate Warriors, a series of shows going to various stadiums, football stadiums around the United States. And Trudy I was reading me the story and said, I think you and Maria should write a book on this and or should write on this. And it really, that was the start of it. We ended up writing about Tailgate Warriors and published an article in 2013, was it? Yeah, that's right. And that was the start. It wasn't going to be a book that just gradually developed. We did the Tailgate Warriors episode that Rita referred to taped an episode in Oakland uh, at an Oakland Raiders football game. So we were able to go watch the taping and that along with the analysis of the TV show led us to a conference presentation. Mm -hmm. We turned that into a journal article while we were doing that. We thought, Hey, maybe there's some other aspects of tailgating that we could study. So there was another conference presentation. We looked at tailgate commercials next, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. At a, and then we looked at uh, tailgating cookbooks. Mm-hmm. Which was sort of an unexpected find, wasn't it? We didn't really Definitely. envision that at all. Um, but that was, I think, ends up being, for me at least, one of the more fascinating parts of the book. It got us into the area of food studies, which, yeah, we both thought was just entirely fascinating. And we based a lot of the book on some wonderful work we found in that area. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that I... Um, found most intriguing as a reader was just a variety of different disciplines and sources that you brought to your study. I mean, this isn't just about a reading of Guy Fieri's uh, show, which was interesting enough on on its own, but there's just a a, a wide range of sources. So I'm wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what different types of sources you use to understand tailgating and were there any, I mean, you're, you're saying cookbooks were surprising, but what were some of the surprising finds that you found? Well, I think uh, when when we, when we people started to find out that we were doing this work, um, they, they passed on even more pop culture references and sites to us. So whether it was television commercials or episodes in film, you know, those kinds of things, or even like a... a a billboard or a comic strip or, you know, so those, you know, we knew those pop culture references were around. um, But I think once we got more deeply into it, uh, especially of course in the fall, September, October, November, those, those references were everywhere. I mean, we were saturated at times. It felt like, so that was, that was kind of exciting, but also a little overwhelming at times. And it pointed us to fun viewing 
you know, the episode of The Simpsons where they start out at a tailgate. Yeah. <laughs> An episode of a, a sketch on uh, Portlandia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, on a spoof of tailgating. And instead of at a football game, they're at a taping of uh, Prairie Home Companion. <laughs> and it's the NPR fan crowd. <laughs> <laughs> That's really fascinating. I'm wondering um, how these diverse sources help you all say the things that you want to say about performative masculinity? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think the, uh, the sources that we found from food studies really complemented what we were familiar with from the area of sport and cultural studies literature. Um, you know, we found authors writing about various aspects of gender in uh, televised cooking, for example. And contemporarily, but also going back to the era of, say, Julia Child just starting out. And anytime we could reference Julia Child, we thought that's just a big bonus for us. Um, and you know, then there was some other, you know, great stuff on cookbook literature and um, how that helped sort of set, perpetuate um, ideas about gender around food, masculinity, and femininity, and eventually maybe challenge them a little bit. As we got closer to the 21st century, mm-hmm. um, we found the wonderful, is that Carol Adams' book on the sexual yes. politics of meat? Yes. Um, and that kind of blew our minds a little bit, but it really gave us a nice um, point of entry to thinking about um, food and gender in, in a different way. Yeah. So we, we really did rely on the food studies literature a, a great deal, um, as Maria just said. And I think, you know, hopefully, we hope going forward that there is more of this this intersectional play between the two areas of study, right? Between food studies and sports studies. Um, and not that it was bad to rely on food studies, it was wonderful, but it would be nice if there was more work happening in sports studies, certainly around food. Uh, we hope that this project um, prompts some of that work, hopefully. I think it can't help but promote some, some of that work uh, since what you all are saying uh, rings so true in the way in which we think about this interconnection between food and um, sport. I, I, your book is organized um, more thematically than chronologically in some ways. I'd like to start with the with the first chapter since I'm an historian, so I can't help myself. But uh, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of tailgating. Where does tailgating even come from? Well, first, if I could, as a sort of a methodological piece, this chapter was actually a late edition. We we didn't plan on a history chapter, and then we thought maybe it would be like a partial section of another chapter, just talking briefly about the history of tailgating. And then as we as we started to explore that, we realized there was nothing written, <laughs> and so we thought we'd we'd take a shot at it ourselves. Um, and you know what? What we found um, is uh, the entire book is fascinating, but the, the chapter, the, the history chapter, I think, you know, I guess maybe it's a little surprise that that all roads lead in many ways to um, the, the elite schools on the East Coast, the, the elite colleges and universities on the East Coast. And although Maria and I are careful not to say that you know tailgating originated there, because quite honestly, we don't know. Um, but it, it 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 must have been quite a scene, you know, to be in New Haven or Amherst or uh, one of the other small college towns in the East in 1900, 1905, and have 40, 50, 60,000 spectators or more coming to a football game on a Saturday afternoon and just crushing that small town. I mean, just with tens of thousands of people traveling by automobile to get there. Um, and what we started to find is that basically a very practical problem. These small towns could not accommodate the influx of the fan base to the to the games on Saturday. And it led to kind of a spillover, right? Taking your picnic onto the grass <laughs> before the game, before you entered the stadium. That, that seems to be the path. Um, yeah, Maria, do you want to add anything to that? And the fans... Um or the folks who are more casually seeking out entertainment options were also pretty creative about 
um, just, you know, getting to the games and making sure they were, were fed and were feeding themselves and had drink um, and just a comfortable environment. Um, the story about, was it in Wisconsin with the headlights? Wisconsin? It might have been Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm not sure. When, you know, in the early era of automobiles with fans getting in cars and turning their headlights on yeah. so they could light up the playing field. Yeah. Um, or the, the goats in Harlem. Yeah, that's a great one. You got to read that first chapter. Um, but I think you know, Michael. One of the things we, we tried to we tried to really uh, underscore in that first chapter is something that Michael Oriard talks about in his wonderful books on on football history, um, and that was how, for us at least, tailgating was a part of a much larger spectacle that had emerged in the early twentieth century. It was it was from its from the get go an important part of the spectacle in which, as we discuss, women played, uh, at times, a central role. I mean, obviously, they weren't players on the field, but they they were a central role in the social spectacle of football. And that's a bit of the thread that we try to weave through that first chapter as a way of incorporating women into this narrative. It, honestly, we didn't expect to find that at all. I'm not sure what we thought we'd find in this mm-hmm. history chapter. But the, the, certainly the place of women um, and constructions of, of femininity as it as it rode along sort of in this tailgate um, was very interesting to us. Yeah, in some ways it's almost n- not even a tailgate yet, right? It's more of a picnic or, or something like that, no? I mean, what, what, paint the picture for us. What would we have been eating there in the early, early days at, in New Haven? Mm. There's sar- <laughs> sardine sandwiches, possibly. Um, boiled salmon. Boiled salmon. <laughs> Um, Real football foods. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so in some ways, obviously, it doesn't look anything like it does today. You know, warm cup of coffee, um, the whole notion of a thermos, I think, was still sort of in its infancy. And so I'm not sure even how they would have transported that. But it's sort of the, the thermos, I think, comes into being in the early 20th century. And so it's it's rudimentary, obviously, by today's standards. But not to not to minimize what it was for the folks then, because it really was an event. I mean, just see them, you know, on the grass outside Stanford Stadium out here in California, picnicking on the grass with a large picnic basket and and uh, having several friends and family around you the entire day and then going into the stadium for another three hours. I mean, and then having to take the train home or the automobile home. I mean, it really it was an excursion and food was central to that excursion. And, and, and as you and as you suggest, women were extremely central. So, what, what was the role of women in this early tailgate culture? I mean, what were women doing? They were preparing the food at home and packing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really it seemed to be their primary role. Yeah, and that that really stays really stays the case. I think for a good part of the twentieth century, as we mm-hmm. talk about in the book, it really doesn't begin to change until what, the last 20 or so years, 20 or 25 years, when when men begin to sort of take center stage in terms of um, prepare, getting the food, preparing the, getting the food to the stadium, preparing the food at the stadium, et cetera. In the earliest days as well, women, since some of the food, you know, might have been brought in a picnic basket or might have been bought at a, a local store and then, you know, taken to the grassy knoll outside of the stadium, mm-hmm. um, Women were in many ways too, sometimes just just on the arms of the male students. Like it, they were, they were in some ways tangential um, because you know it was mostly it was men, obviously, at the elite schools in the east, um, and women were just there to join them, um, you know, for companionship and food being a part of that. We've got this nice little piece in the chapter about the Yale luncheons that would happen on on campus in the school, basically cafeteria in the dining hall where, you know, female guests were invited to join uh, male students for a little luncheon before the games. And that that seemed like it was a an impressive event, an important event, something uh, sort of a hard ticket item, you know, hard to get, um, like a well sought after kind of kind of happening, you know, which to us just reinforced how important this part of the spectacle was. But as you suggest, something starts to change in those last 20 to 25 years. It 
something to do with technology. It's something to do with the automobile. It's something to do with the food. The rest of the chapters in your book uh, dive into dive into that in more depth. Um, but I, I wonder if you can just start to introduce that to listeners. So what is happening in that last 20 to 25 years? How is this shifting from the picnic to the barbecue, from the, the this realm of domesticity to this performance of masculinity? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seemed to happen quite gradually yeah. from, from what we could piece together with this, this cultural history. So, yes, it was more picnic fair up until, you know, that last 20, 25 years or so of the what, 20th century. Um, prepared ahead fair sandwiches, um, typical picnic side dishes, potato salads, bringing uh, prepackaged food, chips, the thermoses of hot beverages. And it was like that was the women's work. And then from there, um, Let's see, we have to we keep weaving in the automobile culture because the station wagon yeah. makes more picnicking uh, possible and more types of picnicking possible. As well as technological advances around the grill mm-hmm. and sort of portable grill technology, right? We talk a little bit about that after um, sort of in the post-World War II era where barbecuing becomes, barbecuing at home, uh, grilling at home become sort of this big event, a place where others in food studies had written, you know, a place where masculinity could be put on display, right? Um, where cooking is removed from the domesticity of the kitchen into the backyard. But what we see happening a little bit, and as Maria said, it's sort of a gradual shift onto the blacktop. But through the 1960s and 70s, certainly, you begin to see this shift again with the automobile and uh, portable grill technology and men taking up more sort of central space now not not the grill you know in their backyard but the grill on the blacktop that they have transported there in their station wagon mm-hmm. yeah and there's i guess started a little compared to what we see today on the blacktop it was smaller scale when this shift was initially occurring so hot dogs hamburgers um, pretty easy things to put on the grill to cook up in a relatively short amount of time. Not doing too much prep ahead of time, but there is fire outdoors, and we're seeing red meat with the hamburgers. Mm-hmm. Um, another, one, another one of those key signifiers uh, of masculinity in, in food culture. Um, and so those are the more humble origins of the shift to grilling in performance on the blacktop. Mm-hmm. Right. And even, you know, while that was happening, the cookbooks of that era continued to present recipes for more make-ahead dishes than prepare on the spot over a grill types of meals. Technology plays a, a big part of the story you all are telling. Um, and that's the central focus, I think, in some ways of your of your second chapter, technology and spectacle, how they work together. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, some of the ways in which technology over that period uh, develops in a way to help this performance of masculinity. And for our listeners' sake, I hope you really tell them about all the places you all saw when you went to go visit the Blacktops. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, we, we definitely want to talk about these sites because, uh, you know, the, the book is really... It's, you know, Maria said at one point, it's really a tale of two tailgates. We, we felt as though this, the, the pieces of tailgate culture that are presented to us, like through tailgate warriors, television, for example, the way and through television commercials and even cookbooks is different in many cases than what's actually going on on the blacktop outside of football stadiums here in the U.S. I mean, and I, I don't I don't really want to I don't think we want to paint quite maybe as clean a binary, but there is, there are some real differences. And so we felt as though like, like the kinds of ways that we saw masculinity expressed on the blacktop and all the sites that we visited was much more nuanced, much more complicated than what we were seeing in the way tailgate culture was represented to us through these various forms. Um, And some of that was, the various media forms, the way, as you said, that technology 
and just like the, the advancement. I just keep coming back to that one commercial that we saw about um, the man machine, the man machine, which was, you know, this this grill that instead of having a dial from zero to 10, it went to 11, you know, and it, it had this infrared thing on it. And it was just fryer. a deep fryer and, you know, this man machine. And so in some ways, technology just enabled sort of this hyper masculine, like masculinity run amok, you know, and, and, and technology just sort of reinforced all of that in these, in these sort of caricatured ways. Right. Um, yeah, we couldn't tell whether it was parody at times or not. I mean, that's how outlandish it's. <laughs> um, yeah, and then so and that's what we see in like these pop culture representations. You go to the blacktop, and you certainly do see spectacle, um, but it's different in that it's not the caricature. It's more um, there's a creativity to it with some tailgaters, um, and a resourcefulness with some tailgaters. Um, we could start, you asked about the different places we went to do our research and start in Buffalo, New York at the tailgate for the Buffalo Bills with Pinto Kenny, yeah. who tows a defunct old Pinto car to his tailgate space uh, every for every home game. And the car is used as a cooking surface. Um, so he then puts other things on top of the hood of the car, uh, an old toolbox that has coals in the bottom of it, uh, and then some kind of uh, grill on top of it, and then he, you know, you grill your sausages on the toolbox, um, or you take an old hubcap and you put coals in it, place a rake over the hubcap, and then put your Italian peppers on that to grill up to serve with the sausages. Mm-hmm. Repurpose an old World War II Army helmet and use it as a deep fryer for your chicken wings. Um, and that's the um, that's sort of the heart of his tailgate. Mm-hmm. And then when Rita was interviewing him, and he talked to you about how he didn't want anything to do with the more conventional yes. uh, grilling methods, right? Yeah, the more unconventional it was, and it was uh, the better for him. Um, so while like he was he was obviously one of the more outrageous mm-hmm. um, points around which we saw spectacle. There was. There was also this, I remember this, uh, the guy in New England, uh, the Patriots tailgate. This was a guy who had, uh, you know, pickup truck, and he had, he, he wanted to tell me all about his signature little lamb kebabs. I mean, these things were, they were, each one looked identical to the other. And that, that's really the only thing he was cooking that day were his lamb kebabs, about 12 inches long on the skewer. But what this guy had done was almost like the exact opposite of what we saw everybody else doing. Instead of this like humongous grill or deep fryer or rotisserie chicken spit or smoker, this guy actually built his grill to fit the 12-inch lamb kebabs. So he had this exact, it was about 13 inches long and I don't know its depth, but he had assembled it, he built it himself. And then he had welded it onto the back of his tailgate. So all he had to do was like spin it out. He just pulled it out and he got his little lamb kebabs on there. And I just thought in the, in the middle of this blacktop where I've got six foot long grills, I've got this guy with this little 13 inch um, grill that he's concocted himself just so he could grill his lamb kebabs. I mean, and that, that to me just... It spoke to, you know, what Maria just mentioned about sort of the resourcefulness of these guys, that at times it was very much about this display, right, this outward display. And yet at other times, it it didn't seem to be that at all. Although I was interested and attracted to his little grill, um, it wasn't because of its largesse, you know. I, I do think that's a great point that you two are both highlighting. One of the thing, themes that you hit throughout the book again and again is that agency of people to contest um, and to, to reshape these nor- normative notions of, of masculinity through different types of perform- performance, um, even women, right? So, are, I mean, there are places for women in this technological um, struggle as, as well. Um, could you talk, tell us a little bit about some of the women and, and their cooking techniques? Was it Was it different or have women taken up the barbecues too? <laughs> Not so much. 
But, <laughs> and we were talking about this before we um, went on uh, air with you, we did meet one woman uh, who was the head of her tailgate at Stanford University. Uh, and uh, her name's Nancy. She's, there's a picture of her in the book. And she was um, commandeering the biggest Weber grill we'd ever seen. <laughs> and full of meat, skewers, tri-tip, uh, there was a pot of beans cooking on it at one time. Um, and I'll let Rita tell the rest of the story because she just went back and saw Nancy um, to give her a copy of the book. Yeah, so we, you know, we, it wasn't just this huge Weber grill. Um, it was, it was the activity going on around it, right? Nancy was clearly the sort of the center stage, center of the party. She had, a, they had a DJ. They had, I mean, it, it was, it was an event happening there. A tent. I mean, it was, it was enormous. And we didn't, we didn't often see that where a woman was the center of the show, and uh, her husband was sort of, you know, on the periphery, really. Mm-hmm. But but not really. He, it was clear. It was clear to him and everybody else that he was on the periphery. He was there to help her, mm-hmm. um, but she definitely was the boss, and that of course caught our attention because we didn't see that often in this space. Um, and when we did see it, it did obviously challenge our uh, sort of what we thought we were going to see after we had been to so many tailgates. There was another episode as well. We talk a little bit about in the book. It really, you know, captured us, and that was I had gone to Southern University um, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in November, and and I Southern is a historically black college. Um, it was a much I, earlier in the day. I had actually been over to Louisiana State. Uh, they were playing um, Alabama, and that that was an that was an entirely different day. I have to say, morning at LSU, afternoon at Southern. Southern was a much smaller space, much more modest tailgating happening there. But um, one of the biggest tailgates at Southern, I, I came across two women, uh, two sisters, Glinda and Linda, who were, again, like Nancy, the center of the action, man. They were on it. They were deep frying. They were grilling, all sorts of things. Um, and at one point, they were having trouble with the fryer, getting the thing lit, and a, a gentleman in their party came up to say to Glinda, I think it was, can I, can I, can I help you get started with that? And she basically just turned to him matter-of-factly and said, you know, go sit down. We've got this thing covered. And um, again, unusual and yet uh, very profound and provocative, I think, in challenging um, sort of standard notions of what, what we saw on the blacktop in terms of men, masculinity, and food. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I, there's a lot of other things in this chapter I wish we could talk about, and especially the, this uh, issue of RVs. Um, but I just want to highlight that for listeners. There's also a very fascinating discussion of uh, RVs and space uh, in this chapter. But I really want to move on and talk about meat. This is the chapter I felt uh, was directed at me personally <laughs> um, because I, 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 I so recognize myself. So how does, I mean, meat is very coded as masculine. And, and I think that as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, yes, of course. Uh, but how, how does the type of food that people choose to cook uh, play into this question of performance? What kind of hierarchies of food are there? And um, how did that some of the people you met choose what food they wanted to make? Yeah, I think, um, I think entire animals uh definitely rank highest yes absolutely you, you know, your, your whole roasted pig yeah in oakland spit. right yes in, in oakland and certainly at lsu um yeah saw, in the box at, at lsu yeah though, yeah right? uh certainly saw entire animals being cooked on the blacktop um and so i would say in terms of hierarchy if we're going to say that i think the, the probably the the brightest display of <laughs> masculinity has to be around those right um 
And we saw plenty of that. And and the work done around them. So, for example, the whole roasted pig on a spit in Oakland. Uh, those tailgaters told us they were up at, oh gosh, 6 a.m. They had the pig going by 8 a.m. that day. Um, and we're just talking about the pig in a quite possessive way um, as well. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And, and just the, That's the ultimate. Just the sight of it, right? The spit was high. I remember it was, yes. it was well off the ground. And so this pig was like flying in the air, right? <laughs> I mean, in front of this football stadium with the flags, you know, the U.S. flag and the Oakland Raiders flag. I mean, it was, it was just the, it was surreal in a way. Um, to see that, and again, as, as Maria just said, like his pride in this pig, um, and it was up there for the world to see. Yeah, mm-hmm. and another reason why that became our cover photo when they were serving that pig. Yeah. The uh, this discussion of different types of food um, is is really fascinating because I think it dissenters in some ways, or it did for me at least in some ways. Um, this this previous notion in chapter one about femininity and in, in cooking because so many of the people that you all were speaking to took such pride in the the process of food and thinking about um, being hosts. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that came about. Sure. Um, how that shift came about? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, boy, I don't know if we pinpointed a specific moment culturally. I think we we anticipated there would be a more discreet moment where barbecue culture and the hosting and the performing in the backyard um, transferred to the blacktop, but it was a little messier and gradual than that. Um, But it's it's there now. Uh, And among the tailgaters who really care about cooking, that comes across so strongly. And, you know, it's one of the more, I think, interesting pieces about our findings really is that, and it's it's one of the more interesting pieces about gender and masculinity that we see, right? Where we can have these displays of hyper-masculinity just saturating the blacktop. And yet the men who are in this space are really using food to nurture. They're using food to create community. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways that really um, made the whole pro- the whole event for us much more complex. It, it, it's not just a bunch of men running out there and throwing a steak on a grill. I mean, it's it's that, but it's <laughs> it's it's much more than that. I think that's what really surprised us. We try to talk a little bit about that in one of the later chapters about mm-hmm. how men use food to nurture and to comfort and to give back. And um, so yes, while it's about display and hypermasculinity and spectacle. There was also an, something else running through this tailgate, and we mm-hmm. try to we try to flesh that out a little bit in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, very strong connections between uh, meat and spectacle. And when you know the examples of spectacle that we saw, whether it was um, the method of cooking, uh, the type of grill used, the type of tools used while grilling. Um, complexity of the recipes, preparations. Um, for the most part, all of that had to do with meat. Meat was at the center of the spectacle, the complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, yeah, to see, you know, we listened to a lot of men talk about how proud they were of their various preparations or the recipes that they had concocted or their creativity and wanting to test out new recipes each tailgate season and so they'd actually like have you know a group of tailgaters the third rail niners from san francisco um they do a debrief at the end of every season and talk about what worked what didn't what they'd like to put on their menu for the upcoming season mm-hmm. um so and that's something if we go back in history it's much more associated with women and women's work and what's what was at the center of building community for women, recipe swapping, um, for example. Um, And, you know, that still does happen today, but here in this space um, of food around, food in the culture of sport, um, it's men who are doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just that the spectacle is there. And it as, and then the practice is, um, 
really see it as a way of um, kind of presenting or reaffirming masculinity, uh, just maybe in a different way. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad that you both have brought up this issue of community because it does seem to be so central to what you're trying to, to talk about, uh, both in the fourth chapter um, on ethnic edibles and Hindu spices, which is talking about race and ethnicity in, in these blacktop spaces, and also um, in culinary communities on the blacktop. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how cooking together um, creates communities, whether these communities and in where these communities are able to, to transcend social class and race and ethnic boundaries and where they're not. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could, two could unpack that a little bit for us. I think, I mean, on some level, obviously, there's this shared sense, this shared space around football and the team, right, that they, that they support. So there's, there's that in creating community. Um, and then, you know, and, and the other thing that, that, we, that we found is that, you know, part of the way that community was created is that the, these, these tailgaters are in it uh, for a very long time. I mean, we met some folks at Stanford who had been there for, what, 40 years, mm-hmm. 45 years? Mm-hmm. And so each and every year coming out with the same group of folks, uh, friends, usually from undergrad days. But we saw that everywhere, you know, and decades long. And I'm sure that wasn't even the longest. I'm sure there were plenty of others out there that were even longer. And generational sharing within families. Yeah. My grandfather attended this university, so and my dad did, and I wanted to come here too. And this was, you know, we've tailgated throughout three generations worth. Yeah. yeah. So in that way, particular understandings of community are getting reified constantly in this space. And it's one of the things I think makes it attractive, right? It's, it's got all the elements. You're rallying around a team. You've got your family and friends with you. There's food. There's alcohol. I mean, it creates this sort of rich ambiance for this community. But, of course, what we also found is that it's, it's incredibly segregated. I mean, it, it's white. Um uh, we, we saw a very, Oakland, probably San Francisco, I mean, given the diverseness of the Bay Area, probably helped that along. But, mm-hmm. you know, in many of the spaces, certainly when we were on the blacktop, um, I didn't necessarily see integrated spaces in terms of race and ethnicity. Not that there weren't, there were, but it wasn't, it wasn't the norm. Um, no, not at all. And, you know, the majority of the Places we went to um, you know, conduct research, um, is, you know, they're primarily white spaces, and that just sort of pervaded our field notes, um, remarking on that. Um, but as Rita said, for Oakland, um, a more diverse city, thus a more diverse fan base. Um, San Francisco, to an extent, uh, as well. Um, so it isn't even, you know, some places like what Buffalo. And see, it wasn't even so much segregation as it was just all white. All white, yeah. Yeah, on the blacktop. Mm-hmm. So, um, that's telling us something about our, our sport culture, um, our tailgating culture in particular. And, you know, especially notions of class as they intersect, I think, with race and ethnicity as well. I mean, you know, when I was at, at Baton Rouge, Louisiana State, um, you know, talking about $2 million RVs and several thousand dollars just to park in the space for eight home games a year. I mean, it's already, uh, you know, it, I think it helps to explain what we saw, a little bit at least, in terms of some of the structural issues and the way structural inequalities around race and class get played out on the blacktop in incredibly white and fairly wealthy uh, class, yeah. The other thing from um, your fifth chapter that really, I think, emphasized the whiteness of the space for me was that battle between uh, Minnesota and New Orleans. In the in the, in the, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, let's see. That was from the Tailgate Warriors episode, um, and the yeah the the food really. Um, I think represented the differences in those two locations and, you know, the fans' experiences of their locations. So the Louisiana 
uh, uh, sorry, the New Orleans food was more what uh, spicier, Spicy. more seafood based, varied uh, in terms of varied. color and yeah, yeah. Um, so again, food really coming to signify place, right? Um, and the politics of place as well. And so just the way Tailgate Warriors in that episode, the way they juxtapose this incredibly diverse, rich, um, spicy cuisine of uh, New Orleans with what they self-describe sort of bland, white, plain food of Minnesota, right? The Minnesotans didn't think they could win because they, they didn't even think their own food could stack up against New Orleans. So, but it, for us, it just, it just reaffirmed um, gender in a way, certainly. But again, the way gender was intersecting in that moment with um, ethnicity and how then ethnicity and place um, merge um, to create this sense of food, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm from the Midwest myself originally, but I have to admit when I was reading the description, although the way you set it up, it, it's pretty clear um, that Minnesota's going to win. I'm reading Nora Leans like, no, I want to eat that. <laughs> you know, why why can't I? Why can't that have been at any tailgate I was ever at? Um, right, right. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering. I mean, your fourth chapter, I think, in in some ways, is one that. I think will be most interesting for people looking um, at maybe the futures of what tailgates could be, as well as as the possibilities for expanding normative notions of what tailgating can be. But I, I guess I wonder you, if you can tell us a little bit about how people um, who who are people of color from as people recognized as ethnic minorities have, cre- have created spaces for themselves on the blacktop. Yeah. I mean, I think I think culinary traditions are very. We saw this, and we saw this in several locations. I think we saw it probably most profoundly in Oakland, yeah, where um, several groups of men from Mexico, mm-hmm. um, uh, Mexican American folks, who just um, yeah, and again, like many of the men we we talked to, learning those culinary traditions from the women in their worlds, their mothers, their grandmothers, and bringing that, bringing that, and taking up space on the blacktop, and uh, we saw that through and through with just not just the food, but with the music that was played, uh, the flags that were flying overhead. Um, yeah, we saw that. We saw that distinctly. I think in Oakland, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the like carving out of space you, you mentioned, uh, absolutely um, good evidence of that in in Oakland um, at the 49ers tailgate uh, a little bit. Um, so there's one group of tailgaters in Oakland, uh, Los Malosos, mm-hmm. which they told us loosely translates to Raiders in Spanish. Um, so I'm not sure if that was a construct of their own, but they were very proud of it. Um, they were cooking, you know, what you recognize as, you know, Mexican food, um, carnitas, um, and I think they and playing Mexican music. And one of the guys in that group told us, well, we do our roots. And that was a reference to both the music and the food. Um, this is also the group that spends time um, going to Tijuana every year um, to cook food for an orphanage, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're actually based in Los Angeles, and they drive up. Uh, they were driving up to home games in Oakland. Um, I don't know if they're going to go to Las Vegas with the Raiders um, moving, um, but they were committed not just to the Raiders, but to cooking food to um, nurture others. Yeah. And obviously when I was at at, uh, Southern in Baton Rouge, the African-American culinary traditions were on display as well. and again, same thing. Uh, you know, I think what, what, what did I, I? I think I think I gained ten pounds over the course of this research. I mean, I think we, we ate so much of these tailgates. The food was phenomenal. And tailgaters are very. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I just remember, you know, the Glinda and Linda tailgate, this huge pot, and the you know, boiled turkey legs and potatoes and and whole ears of corn. And, um, and you know peach cobbler for dessert. So in, in some ways, drawing on both Southern and African American traditions, I think, in the creation of their tailgate, a tailgate that had been going on for over 30 years. Um, so in that way, I think to answer your question, while that it might not have been, while it was mostly a white space in most spots, there were definitely these really full places, these really rich places where 
men of color, women of color were taking up space uh, in their own way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, that which maybe, maybe a little more glaring when we were looking through cookbooks to do that analysis that that kind of cooking, food, practice, experience is not really, it's not reflected. Um, we don't see African-American representation in tailgate cookbooks despite that rich tradition um, or much from um, other um, ethnic groups in, in the U.S. Um, so, and that, you know, that mirrors um, representation in general cookbooks throughout the 20, most of the 20th century. It's, um, I guess, held on a little bit longer in Telgate cookbooks, that lack of mm -hmm. diverse representation, though. Yeah. Yeah, I have to admit, while reading, I was struck at times um, by certain hopefulness, like, okay, um, we have we have innovation, we have agency, we have ways of, of contesting, challenging these normative notions of masculinity. Like maybe we can have a manly vegetable. Maybe um, <laughs> people of color can carve out more space, better spaces for themselves. But also um, I, your, your analysis is very nuanced. So every time there also feels like a moment where that flips back as well, which, you know, okay, we might find more ethnic food, but then somebody's just going to take one ingredient, and now we have, you know, uh, you know, tailgate samosas or something. But it's not really <laughs> right. Exactly, there's a little pinch of curry powder in there. Yeah. 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 So I did wonder. I mean, it, it, when you're when you were writing it, were you were either of you thinking about what the future of tailgating might be, or what the you know, we've seen so much change in that first chapter from picnic to barbecue, from domesticity to, to hyper masculinity. Is there a possibility for um, a less hyper masculine tailgate in the future? Is that is that do you see, see it trending that way or a less white tailgate in the future? I don't know. It's become like most things, right? So commodified and so. Uh, where were we? That maybe I was at Baton Rouge. I can't quite remember. We saw this in lots of places, but just big corporate interests, obviously uh, yeah. taking over the tailgate. And so I wonder what that will mean in terms of its future. Whether we're talking about race, ethnicity, mm -hmm. gender. Um, ownership of the space you know we see that we certainly saw that in Oakland now that Oakland's leaving now that the Raiders are leaving Oakland and going to Las Vegas whereas I understand it there may not be much room for tailgating um, yeah so I just I just wonder how corporate power which has always been present how how it will invade the blacktop in ways maybe that will change tailgating yeah yeah and, and there is you know as Rita said there's evidence there of event management companies specializing in tailgates um, carving out spaces especially on college campuses yeah and we saw it I saw it in Oregon in Tennessee um, and no, those aren't the only places where you have, you know, like a tailgate party business um, that goes in, sets up a tent, provides catered food for the tailgaters, um, other services like um, uh, satellite hookup, large screen television um, set up um, all in a space so the tailgaters just have to show up. They don't have to worry about getting there early um, to make sure they get the space they want. They don't have to worry about bringing food from home, doing any prep, bringing coals, sharp, you know, yeah. the grill. Yeah. Um, so it's not at the majority of places, but it has enough of a presence that we take notice and we think, is this going to get bigger? Is this going to make tailgating in some places a little more elitist? Yeah. And, and less accessible and inclusive. A little stale. Yeah, a little, that too, yeah. Yeah. Less varied. That, that's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised though. And, and I, I do encourage uh, listeners to pick up, pick up this book and read the section on RV if mm -hmm. you want to just blow your mind about the, the amount of money that goes into to, to some of these tailgates. I mean, for every person with a beat up Pinto, there's a, there's sounds like 10 people with $2 million RVs in Baton Rouge. Um, but, uh, 
So I, I want to say thank you to both of you. Um, this has been this was a really fascinating book. I, I want to encourage all of our listeners. It might sound um, for many people, I think in sport, it might sound like um, it's outside of your wheelhouse if you to read about tailgating because it's not about the action on the inside of the stadium, but it's um, every bit as important. And, and really, I, I I think I read this in like. <laughs> a day and a half because I really couldn't put it down. Um, I was telling I was telling my my partner about it. I was saying, "Honey, this is great," and she was like, "You know, what are you talking about?" I was telling her about all this. She's like, "Yeah, you're 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 just talking about yourself, <laughs> <laughs> um, giving me a hard time." Um, but it 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 was a very I think just a really rich a really rich book. Um, I, I wonder if you two could tell us about this is a, a traditional last question i'm saving a little extra time because there's two of two of you um but if you could tell us what you're working on now what can we look forward to next well i uh this the book on food uh, on tailgate was really a departure for me um my work is mostly african-american women's sport history 20th century and so I, i'm going to go back um to that this this little foray into food and tailgating has been wonderful absolutely loved it um but i want to go back and do um over the past few years i've gotten to know wyomi tyas and edith mcguire duvall two uh, olympians u.s olympians track athletes from the 1960s and uh, they were with the great tennessee state tiger bells uh the dynasty of that period and so gotten to know them a little bit and uh, if you meet them you you learn quickly that they are they have they are friends they have been close friends for 60 years and so I want to write something about that friendship and and why uh, why really we don't talk much about female friendship in elite sport and uh, it's still new I'm still thinking through it but that's I think where I'm gonna go next Uh, and for me, while you know the tailgating was you know certainly a new direction, it was also kind of running parallel to a broader interest um, for me in kind of the intersection of food and sport. Um, so I've done some work on uh, the dairy industry and its use of male athletes, celebrity endorsers in the early 20th century. So I might pick up that thread. And then I'm also, you know, feeling really invested in wanting to continue to grow this area at the intersection of food studies and sports studies. So um, I am uh, planning to put together an anthology, edit an anthology on um, sport and food. Um, So those kind of are the two general projects that um, I'm turning to moving forward. Great. Well, we're going to look forward to all of those projects. I'm really keen to see how the food and, and sport nexus continues to develop. And I think that this book uh, provides a good point of departure for anyone looking at a way of doing this really well, especially you know mobilizing different uh, disciplinary and methodological um, backgrounds, right? Um, the history, the ethnography, et cetera. Uh, so, we have been this has been new books in sports my name is keith rathbone i'm coming to you from macquarie university i've been speaking with maria verai uh, associate professor of kinesiology at san francisco state and rita liberty professor of kinesiology at cal state east bay they were speaking to us today about their just excellent book gridiron gourmet gender and food at the football tailgate um please, please, please pick this up. I'm I'm really encouraging you all to do that. It's one of the better books I've I've read this year at Sports Studies. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And uh, have a nice day.